everyone. What's up? Welcome back to the Landlord Chick Podcast. For starters, I want to apologize. I know it's been probably about three weeks since an episode was posted. Uh, many of you know, longtime listeners, that my podcast is very much a one-person show. So I don't have anybody producing it, editing it, anything like that behind the scenes. This is all created and done by me. So every once in a while, the upload schedule might get a little wonky as other parts of my life get really demanding. But I always end up coming back here and getting back on track with the episode. So I do apologize that it's been probably close to three weeks, if not a little over right now since the last episode. But as promised, we're going to transition back over into day-to-day -day management in this episode. So we're going to talk today about pets, Fido's, Benji's, whatever you want to name your pets, pets and rentals. That's what we're going to talk about today. And this is an episode I'm actually really excited about because I feel like I should have already done this. Like it seems like a more obvious topic because I get a lot of questions about it, but never actually recorded a podcast on it. So today we're going to talk about Fido, Benji, Mia and all the other furry friends that might want to come live in our rental units and how we handle that. Building a real estate portfolio is as much about buying properties as being a de facto entrepreneur. I'm Karina Ufinger. I'm a multi-property investor, rental management company CEO, and also a landlord coach. I'm going to show you the systems and knowledge you need to thrive as a real estate entrepreneur. From your first property purchase to building a portfolio of passive income where you work less than five hours a week, you'll learn the essential information and skills to build a profitable portfolio and live the life you truly want. Whether you are well on your journey or just starting out, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Landlord Chick Podcast. So I want to start with this episode by saying I am a huge fan of animals. I don't want to give the impression that I am anti-animal. In fact, I have a huge, huge heart for pets. Any four-legged friend like automatically is amazing in my book. I have four cats, had four cats. Uh, we are unfortunately down to two now. Uh, but all of my cats have been rescue cats. They're incredibly amazing animals. I adore them. Cats, dogs, the same way. I adore them all. But I did make a I did make a business decision not to have pets in my rentals. Now that's a business decision. It has nothing to do with my personal reflections on four-legged friends. I love four-legged friends. I think they're amazing. They're so non-judgmental and they're always, always lovey. But for my rentals, I made the decision not to have them because for the type of portfolio I operate, it just didn't make sense. So we're going to delve into this topic of recreational pets. And I want to make sure, first off, you understand why I'm saying recreational pets. It's because I'm talking about the Benjis, the Fidos, and the Fifis that you choose to have. I am not referencing any service animal or emotional support animal. And it's really important that you understand that because the federal government protects ESA and service animals. So anything I'm going to say here, does not apply to service or ESA animals. We are only talking about recreational animals, the ones you go to a pet store or a breeder, or you find in a rescue situation. 
Those are the animals that we're talking about here in this podcast. One thing I will say about ESA and support animals, understand that even if your state has other regulations regarding emotional service animals or emotional support animals, you can still be in violation of the federal federal law. So a couple months ago, actually, well, it was more like last October already, I attended an online conference and we had a speaker from the Wisconsin Housing and Urban Development and he was an attorney for them. So he's an attorney for HUD. He made it very clear that while you can be in compliance with your state regulations regarding emotional support animals, that does not free you from a suit from the federal government for violating their laws regarding emotional support animals. So it's really important that you understand that just because you might have certain regulations in your state regarding ESAs, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'd be okay in the eyes of the federal government. And that's a whole lot of mess to unpack that we're really not going to do in this episode because I am serious when I say that's like an entire whole mess of worms in itself. So I want to make sure you know everything we're talking about today is about recreational pets, the ones that we choose to love and have in our lives because we just like their company. So for starters, we have to consider whether or not it's a good decision to take pets. There are two things I usually like to consider in regards to whether or not you take pets. Number one is the age of your property. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that my portfolio is made up of older homes. My youngest home, and it seems kind of odd to say it in this context, but my youngest home was built in the 1890s. So everything I have is very old. So because of that reason, I don't like the idea of rechristening my 1860s woodwork because it's going to be hard for me to either replace it or I have to go through and replace all the trim in that room them and it begins this whole big situation. So that's honestly the biggest reason why I don't take pets in my properties is because I have all older homes. And part of the reasons I have older homes is because I like to restore them and preserve them for future generations. So obviously at that point, it makes my job a lot easier if I don't have Fifi around who is deciding to leave her mark on either expensive or hard to replace original materials for the property. The other thing to consider is the size of the property. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily the square footage. I'm talking about how many units there are in the property. See, having dogs or cats in a single family home is much different than having them in a multifamily, especially when you get up to like 10, 20, 25 units. The scenario changes immensely when you go from like a duplex to a 20 unit. Having a dog in a 20 unit building comes with a lot of ties into the equation. Number one, you could have dog on dog violence per se. You could have dog on human violence. And then of course you have the issue of maybe dogs that are barking separation anxiety when they're left home. My dog had a Shih Tzu, a rescue Shih Tzu that she fostered. And this thing could not be left alone. And it actually did cause problems at her senior apartment that she was at at the time because the dog would just constantly bark when no one was home. So those are the three biggest considerations in regards to dogs and large multifamily. Those are the, probably the biggest three things you want to think about. Then there's sort of this fourth inconvenience, which is, of course, the idea of dog feces in a common yard. 
that's going to probably be a pretty quick complaint that you have over time, especially if the dog owners are not very well trained themselves in picking up the dog feces. But yet we've talked about multifamily. On the flip side of the scale here, if you have a portfolio of single family homes, you might likely err on the side of accepting animals. The reason for that is based on the stage of life that your prospective tenants are likely going to be in. People that are looking to rent single family homes, they have moved on from apartment life, which means they're likely in an older stage of life, meaning they're not 18, 19. They're likely in the stage of life where they're planting brutes, they're starting families, maybe they have a family, and they're likely going to want to get that family pet into the fold pretty quickly. So with a single family home, I generally recommend that you do accept pets. And you just sort of accept it as a sort of risk that you're taking based on your woodwork, your carpets, etc., things like that. Because honestly, with a single family home, if you don't accept pets, you are cutting out a large chunk of your potential tenant pool. And of course, we all want to start with almost as wide of a tenant pool as possible because we're going to have other considerations that eliminate someone from being able to move into our place. We're going to have income qualifications, credit check, background check. So in that instance, with a single family home, I always recommend that you accept them just because you are really suddenly running a really shrinked tenant pool of people that might want to rent your building. So single family homes, I generally re recommend that you take pets. Multifamily dogs is what I, I, I always people to have a serious thought process and consideration about. Cats in large multifamilies, of course, you're more than likely not going to have like cat on cat violence in between units because generally speaking, cats are not walked. Although I did. We managed an apartment complex for a couple years and... I got the biggest chuckle every single day when I saw these tenants walk their three cats on leashes. And I don't, you know, and, and this is something I laughed every single day, every single day. I laughed the entire like five years that we managed this property. I just, I laughed every single time I saw it. I just, I, I, I couldn't get over it. But generally speaking, you're not going to have like cat on cat violence. Cats obviously don't bark. Even when their owner's gone, they don't tend to roam the house meowing that much. Although I think I actually have a cat that might have separation anxiety because she does kind of meow when I leave the house, I guess. But maybe she and I just have too close of a relationship. <laughs> but generally speaking, cats in a multifamily are likely going to be a little bit easier of a scenario for you. That being said, let's transition over to talking about the bad stuff about cats because I don't want to just bash dogs here. I guess I want to be an equal opportunity basher when it comes to this stuff. So there are downsides to cats as well. So while cats may not bark and they are unlikely to be walked outside, they can cause as much damage as much damage to the unit as a dog. So misbehaving cats can leave smells in the carpets or the woodwork. This happens if their litter box isn't maintained. Uh, it can even happen with a very well well intending cat. Case in point, one of my one of my cats that recently passed away. She always tried to get in the litter box, always on the litter box, but she peed sort of like a fire hose. And so she'd always be in the litter box, but her trajectory never landed in the litter box. <laughs> so there's that consideration when it comes to cats, because they do use the bathroom inside versus a dog goes outside. 
random thought here, not in my planned outline, but one thing you want to make sure with dogs, if you choose to accept dogs, is never allow potty pads. Potty pads are a horrendous thing for animals to use. People think it's great because it protects their floors, but here's the thing. It gets the dog in the habit of thinking it's okay in that one spot to pee, regardless of whether there's a potty pad there or not, because the dog's never going to like take the moment to realize, oh, the potty pad's not there. I shouldn't pee here right now. I have to wait till my owner gets home. That's not how it works in a dog's mind. So be sure that in your lease, you strictly say no potty pads if you're going to accept dogs or cats, because if somebody tries to use a potty pad for a cat, that shouldn't happen either. And anyway, so getting back to cats and sort of the side eye that we want to give towards cats. So even the well-intended cat can have aim issues with their urine, which can then of course cause other issues. A, a human that does not maintain the litter box is going to present eventually an issue in some form or other. Cats are honestly usually really, really good that, I mean, you could have a seriously high towered litter box full of feces and other debris, and it will still do its best to like get into some corner of the box and use it. But at some point, obviously, there's going to be maybe uh, infestation of little rodents and roaches and stuff from the unmaintained litter box. And of course, obviously, at some point, the cat might just go, well, screw it. I got to go somewhere else and I can't possibly fit any more in this litter box right now. So they're going to obviously go wherever they need to then. And of course, cats have claws. Um, declawing cats, I know, is kind of controversial in the pet community. Uh, there obviously are very valid reasons for not wanting to declaw a cat. Then there's obviously valid reasons for a property owner to want a cat declawed. I am going to choose to go middle of the line with this and say whatever works best for you. I would say that if you're going to accept dogs, if you're going to accept cats, don't require the cats necessarily to be declawed because cats and dogs can do equal amount of damage on woodwork and other items with their claws. So at that point, I would probably just accept cats whether or not they are declawed. The other thing with cats that you want to consider is they will be notoriously hard on screens. They love smelling through open windows and when they get uninvited visitors on the patio or on the deck like squirrels or birds they will do their darndest to defend their territory and they'll end up making you know, little little tears and stuff in the screens but i say all these things to make sure you know that i don't necessarily think that cats are all rosy and they're the perfect pet to have at properties i don't necessarily think that Generally speaking, uh, cat urine is known to be harder to get out of carpet and woodwork than dog urine. But either way, usually anything can be saved as far as carpet or pad goes. If you pull up the carpet pad, prime the subfloor, and then have and then have the carpets really well steam cleaned, you'd have to replace the pad still, but at least you wouldn't have to replace the carpet. So we've covered whether or not we have dogs and cats and what to kind of consider with them. Well, I'm going to talk about breeds in a minute. I know you're all like, wait a minute, we didn't talk about breeds. That's a big thing. We're going to get into that in another section here when we talk about creating your pet policy. 
Now, what about other animals? There's, of course, other animals that exist on this earth that people might want to bring into your unit and make them lovey-dovey family elements. Well, for starters, don't accept anything that is not traditionally domesticated. So no skunks, no tarantulas. Uh, even though they might be adorable, you don't want somebody with a pet penguin. Just keep it to things that are traditionally domesticated. So hamsters are okay, guinea pigs okay, ferrets I'm going to say are a no. If you don't know this, ferrets are notorious for producing odor very easily. Now, of course, any animal produces odor, but ferrets are fairly well known for producing a strong stench quickly. And so if you have an owner that certainly is not, uh, and actually, no, I, I don't want to say that. I was going to say an, an I was going to say an owner that an, an owner that's not keeping up with it, but really, uh, ferrets are just so high maintenance to avoid the odor that you'd really have to be seriously on top of it, taking care of the cage every single day and everything like that, like on a consistent, almost daily basis, to not have a ferret odor appear. So that's why I recommend you don't accept ferrets. Uh, and then getting into birds, so birds are okay again as long as they're traditionally domesticated. Don't don't do hawks, eagles, crows, ravens. Stick with your parakeets, your finches. Uh, you probably want to have in there that they should be caged just because that avoids the possibility of that many little droppings being left across the unit in odd places. Um, <laughs> okay, and you might be like, why are you telling that story? That's because one time um, we we move somebody into a rental and it's not normally our MO to clean above the cabinets in the kitchen. Like we'll clean the cabinets, the outside, the interior, obviously everything like that. But generally speaking, it's not like we, we dust or anything like above, above the kitchen cabinets. We had somebody move into a rental, a, a unit they called and they're like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of bird feces on the top of the kitchen cabinets. <laughs> and we didn't, we didn't see it because at that point the cleaner was not told to check up for things like that. Obviously now everyone's told to check it, but learn from our mistakes. This is why you certainly want number one birds to be caged all the time. And two, this is why you want your cleaner to kind of check up on the high places, especially when you know there's been a bird around there because if they were let out of the cage, it's just naturally going to happen. They're, they're going to leave their little markings somewhere. All right, so getting into your pet policy, whether or not you take pets, you should likely have one or two things in your lease. One, if you say you're not taking pets, you should have in there a no pet statement, which means we don't take pets, you're not moving in with a pet, and you know that we don't accept pets, and here's the fines if you bring a pet to our property. That's a pretty easy, simple thing to include in your rules and regulations. What about if you're going to accept pets? Well, then you got a little bit more footwork ahead of you as far as creating your documentation. Now, whether or not you have a completely separate document that is your pet policy, or you have it just incorporated into your rules and regulations is up to you. But there's gonna be a few key elements that you want in every single pet policy. So number one, you wanna make sure that everyone knows what you take and what you don't take. So how many four-legged friends are you accepting per unit? We stick with the maximum of two four-legged pets per unit. The other thing you want to have in there is any sort of breed restrictions. 
So dogs, this is where dogs are, this is where dogs come into the equation. Obviously, there are certain breeds that generally people don't like to see at apartment buildings. I'm not going to mention them by breed here because I think generally, number one, they're very well known. And two, I don't want to be part of the narrative that might be perpetuating a bad stereotype for certain breeds. I do recommend you have a weight limit in there because, of course, you don't want a situation where you have a very big dog, like a very big dog breed. So you don't want like an English Mastiff or even like, um, what's the other really big one? Oh, like a St. Bernard, a Great Dane. Those are really big dogs that in a multifamily, they could easily cause an issue with another unit. They're out being walked and they sort of like, they get really excited. Maybe they're not aggressive, but they're really excited and they go to greet a four or five-year-old. And well, we all kind of know how that could easily end. So generally speaking, you want to have a weight restriction on your dogs. The other thing I do recommend is that you do talk about picking up dog feces in there. And then also to that effect, cat litter box maintenance. Want to make sure that dog feces are being picked up every single time when they happen. This is especially important in anything where there's a shared yard. So a duplex or a multifamily, a larger multifamily, definitely want to be sure that your tenants are picking up their dog feces in that situation because that if somebody is a non-pet owner, that's like a top tier pet peeve for them is having dog feces in an area that's shared or even in their area. So if it's a really long dog leash and maybe it's a duplex side by side, that dog goes and poo-poos in their yard could very easily become a situation. So always be sure and include in there something about that. Next with dogs in your pet policy, always put in there that when they are not in the unit, they need to be leashed and under the control of a responsible human being above the age of 13. Really, really important because a six-year-old holding a leash cannot keep a good hand on the leash. Even a 20-pound Shih Tzu could easily get away from a six-year-old. So it's really important to have an age qualification on what a responsible human being is. The other thing I'll say in regards to your pet policies, be sure and have in there what would be the strikeout situation. So how many strikes does a pet get before it's asked to leave the premises? We have a two strike policy. So you get two strikes and on the third one, the animal is asked to leave the premises or I should say told to leave the premises. Those are the big things I want to make sure you always include in your pet policy. There's obviously other things you want to include in there. You just want to mention excess of dog barking. You know, that's obviously something you want to say is going to be a no-no. Um, you also want to include in there that maybe any dog on dog violence or dog on human violence could be, it could potentially be a zero tolerance situation. Maybe it's an escalation scale where you get only one of those. And if you get a second one, then you're automatically out. Those are a couple of things to consider adding to your pet policy. Now, I hope this helped clear up a lot of the issues that we have surrounding pets, whether or not to accept them, what you should have in your pet policies. The one thing I didn't say earlier on when we were talking about the pet policy, if you're going to accept pets, number one, I highly recommend that 
you disperse the policy to everyone as long as they're moving into a property that you're going to accept pets. So even if you have a tenant moving in right now that doesn't have pets, it's always a good idea to slip that into the lease agreement so that they know ahead of time what you accept and what you don't accept for a pet. Because the last thing on earth you want is for a very good tenant to go and get a pet only to find out that it doesn't meet your guidelines. You know, so make sure that all of your tenants know what your parameters are for pets and what your rules or regulations are, regardless of whether they actually have a pet at the time. And also, I'll say this. Don't think like you have to have a portfolio-wide pet policy. This could certainly be something that varies by property. So you could absolutely choose to not take any dogs at your multifamily, but take dogs at your single family or dogs and cats at your single family. You can tweak this to be based on property, however it fits for you. So definitely don't feel like you have to have something that covers all your bases everywhere. You can change it up by property as much as you want, as much as you feel you can control. Because this has to be something that you control and enforce. So as long as you're going to remember to enforce a pet policy at your duplex on 95th Street, a I'm sorry, a no pet policy on your duplex at 95th Street, even though you accept pets at your quad on 106th, you know, just make sure it's something you can keep track of and that you're going to be able to enforce when it needs to be enforced at applicable properties. If you guys have any suggestions for podcast episodes, please hit me up over on Instagram at Landlord Chick. The next episode is actually going to be a viewer request. The next episode, I'm going to be going over five lessons I learned from my parents and my grandparents as real estate investors. This is an episode I actually wish I had come up with myself, but alas, somebody else brought it to me. They're like, hey, you always talk about being a fourth generation real estate investor. Can we get some more insight into that? And particularly, uh, Tyler was asking about how my grandfather, who was born in the 1910s, was able to actually be a real estate investor very early on in the 1930s. So I feel like there might be two episodes coming out of my experience being a fourth generation investor. Hope you guys have a great week and I will see you in the next episode, which will not be three weeks apart. Have a great day.